It is uh, good to be back this morning after a uh, little bit of a staycation uh, last week. Uh, got to go and uh, worship at a good friend of mine's uh, church over in Inola. Got to see him uh, affirmed as the new pastor at that church. And uh, it was just a great opportunity to uh, go and uh, praise God for that. But I'm glad to be back this morning. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. Or you can uh, follow along on the Version Bible app. And while you're getting to Leviticus 26, we are uh, going to talk a little bit about where we've been so far in Leviticus because this morning we are actually wrapping up our study in the book of Leviticus. And uh, we started Leviticus right off the bat with kind of this tough subject, this idea of these sacrificial offerings. And uh, in particular, we talked about the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering. And really the importance of these offerings were to give the people an opportunity to be cleansed from their sin, an opportunity to atone for those sins in their lives. And in order for this to happen, it had to come at a cost. The cost was uh, of great importance, and so something had to die. Something had to die. The cost was so high, and what's higher, what is a higher cost than death? And so they would have to sacrifice these animals that would take on the sins of the people who were making the offering. And this giant process of what every detail meant, and it leads into week two where we talked about the priest and what the priests were supposed to wear and the jobs that they were supposed to do. And all of these things pointed to the fact that the priests were to be set apart. They were to be set apart. They were supposed to be those uh, intercessory people. They were the ones who would intercede on behalf of the people. And all of these first two weeks kind of combine and lead us to week three where we talked about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement being this one day of the year when the slate would be wiped clean and the sins of the people would be forgiven and the priests would go in and they would offer these sacrifices and then they would have the scapegoat who would take on the sins of the people that would be taken out of the camp and it would be that representation of their sins being carried away and all of these point to something greater to come. All of these things, the offerings, the, the priest, the day of atonement, it all leads, it all points to Jesus. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high priest because he didn't have to offer sacrifices for his sins because he had no sins. He was perfect. He was the perfect high priest. And the thing about Jesus that made him so unique is not only was he the perfect high priest, but he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He was the scapegoat. He was the one on whom all the sins were placed. And he bled and he died for the people, for us. And that's what these things represent, this sacrifice, these forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, whose sacrifice was once and for all. And then last week, Cody did a wonderful job talking about a very hard text. And, you know, trust me, I got people asking me, uh, what did Cody say when you told him what he was going to be talking about? 
um, some, uh, did you have to, uh, you know, bribe him to take the test? What did you have to do to get him to, to talk about that? And uh, it, it was a difficult text, and he did a, a wonderful job going through that. And, you know, it is something that's so relevant, these moral laws that God gave his people. The reason he gave them these laws is because he wanted them to be holy, as he is holy. And you think about sexual immorality, and, you know, we read that list, and we think, oh, that's different than today. But the thing is, sexual immorality is still very prevalent. It is something the church does not want to talk about. It makes people uncomfortable but it is very real. Pornography makes more money than any major sport in this country. Marriages are ruined by it. Families are ruined by it. It is a thing that is very real. And all these things, especially for God's people, the Israelites, they were getting ready to go and take the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites had all these false gods that were, you know, tied to prostitution. And God is saying, be different. All of these things, be different because you are to be holy. You are to live different. You are to live a holy life. And that brings us to where we are this morning in Leviticus 26. And you see, God, up to this point where we've been, we've talked in the book of Exodus how God pulled his people out of Egypt and he was establishing this relationship with his people, a new covenant with these people and here in Leviticus 26, we find this thematic close. We're getting ready to move into the next leg of the journey. And starting next week, we'll be in uh, the book of Numbers. And you think Leviticus has a lot of uh, list and details. Just wait until we get into Numbers. But it's this thematic close. And as they start to prepare for the next leg of the journey, which is going to be wilderness wandering, God ends Leviticus with two choices for the people. He gives the Israelites two choices. You can do these things or you can do these things. And here's what will happen if you do either. And sometimes these passages where God is just so, you know, forward and he says, this is it. This is, this is how you're to live. This is how you're not to live. Here's what happens. Here's what happens. And they're hard to read because of some of what we will see this morning. But I believe that Leviticus 26, just like everything else we've been in in Leviticus, speaks just to us today as it did back then. And so we're going to be in Leviticus 26, starting in the first two verses. And this is what it says. It says, You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And so our passage this morning, it starts with this reminder that there are to be no idols. Do not build any idols. Do not worship any idols. What God is saying here is, I demand total commitment. I demand total commitment. You are not to go worship other idols. You are not to build idols. You are to honor me alone. You are to worship me alone. God demands total commitment to him. And this is shown in two ways, how you keep my Sabbaths and how you keep reverence for the sanctuary. Notice here the word Sabbaths is plural. It doesn't say keep my Sabbath. It says keep my Sabbaths. It's plural, and it's referring here to the various special days on the Jewish calendar and not just the seventh day. All of these days were so important because of what they symbolized to those Jewish people 
Passover was a reminder of God delivering the people out of Egypt. The Feast of Tabernacles reminded the people of how God took care of them in the wilderness. The first fruits in Pentecost reminded them of the Lord's blessing on their labor in the fields. The weekly Sabbath, it was a reminder that the Jews were God's chosen people and that they could thank God for being with them throughout that week. And so keep my Sabbaths and remember to be reverent for my sanctuary. The people of God had or the people of God had God dwelling in their midst, in the tabernacle. You see, all these other nations, they had these false gods in their midst, but the nation of Israel had the one true God in their presence. And to disobey God would to be to desecrate, desecrate the sanctuary. And of course, you see, this has meaning for us today when we realize that the fact that our bodies are sanctuaries as well. Sanctuaries for God used by the Holy Spirit for his glory. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. It says, or, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so this starts here, this kind of intro, and now we go into verse 3. And we're going to read through verse 13, and it says this. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will conform, or confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect. And so, you notice at the beginning of verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, if you walk in my statutes, if you observe my commands, all of the blessings that are mentioned here in this text, all of these blessings come when they do what God tells them to do. If you do what I ask you to do, then you will see these things happen. And so there's this long list here. Uh, what are these blessings that God promises his people? Well, in these verses, we see a blessing of abundance. We see a blessing of abundance. In verses 3 through 5, God would provide rain when it was needed. And that rain would help the crops, and those crops would produce well. You see, they needed the rain. The rain in its season in that specific time would help their crops to grow, and they needed their crops. And it goes hand in hand. I will give you the rain when you need it, and that rain will cause your crops to grow, and you will have what you need. The New King James in their study Bible, they mention this. It says, the grain harvest was finished by early to mid-June, the grape harvest began about two months later, and having two months to thresh the grain indicates a large harvest. Sowing could not occur until after the first rain softened the ground enough to plow, usually from mid-October on, 
a two-month grape harvest also would be a bumper crop. And so God will give them the rain. God will help their crops to grow. Wiersbe, Warren Wiersbe points out that one reason that Baal worship ensnared the Israelites is because Baal was the Canaanite storm god. If the Jews needed rain, they would turn to Baal for help instead of God. And this is why sometimes God would withhold rain from the people to discipline them. Rain was a very important thing. They needed it, and their crops were important to them. But that's not the only blessing of abundance we see here. In verse 9, it shows that God will turn to them, and he will make them fruitful, and they will multiply. They will continue to have offspring, and they will continue to have offspring, and they will continue to be fruitful. And in doing this, this continues the promise of the covenant that God made with Abraham. In Genesis 17, 6 through 8, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so we see these blessings of abundance. Another blessing we see here is the blessings of peace. At the end of verse 5 through verse 8, the people will live in their land securely. There would be divine protection for the people, protection from the savage beast of the land and from the invading armies seeking to destroy them. And if armies did try to invade, the Israelite armies would chase them out. And it says that one soldier from the Israelites would be like 20 enemies to the army of 100. They would have these, you know, just small group of Israelites would chase off large groups of armies from the enemies because God would be watching over them. He would give them his protection. There would be peace instead of fear for the Israelites. Makes me think of Psalm 31, 23. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. God will protect his people. He will preserve his people. And the biggest of the blessings that we see here is that God's presence would be amongst them. And this really is the biggest blessing of all, because if you think about it like this, if God's presence is removed from the people, what happens? All those other blessings go away. As soon as God turns his face from them, all those blessings disappear. In verses 11 through 13, it says, God will dwell in the midst of his people and he will walk with them. He will walk with them just as he walked with the patriarchs. He will walk with them. And so we have here all these blessings from God. And go back to verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. I think this leads us to the first truth that we see in our text this morning. And it's this. God's blessings are experienced in obedience. God's blessings are experienced in obedience. When we follow God, when we follow his laws, his commands, his decree, we follow after him, we experience the blessings that can only come from God. Now, let me state right here from the very beginning, what I'm talking about is not health and wealth. Following Jesus does not make one healthy and wealthy. And this may be the case for some, but we're not promised that. Hebrews eleven thirty six through 40 actually reminds us of this. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, through, or though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something, far, or something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And so this isn't talking about health and wealth. And so the question is, what are the blessings that we experience for being obedient? What are those blessings that come from God for those who are obedient to him and follow his commands? Well, I think for starters, there's comfort in our trials. We all go through things. We all face storms in life. We all experience dark times, difficult times, hard times. But we can find comfort in our trials, and that's a blessing that God gives us, that he is with us in the midst of those storms, in the midst of those trials. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so that we are able to, in turn, comfort those around us. How else does God bless us? Well, he blesses us with peace that comes through the blessing of prayer. When we're going through difficult times, when we're going through difficult storms, we can pray to him and we can find peace. Those are two blessings that we have through him. In Philippians chapter 4, 6, and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can have peace that comes through prayer. What's another blessing that he gives to us? Well, he supplies our needs Notice that word there, needs. That's the hard word, isn't it, needs? Because sometimes we get the words need and want mixed up. We get them a little bit confused. We, we say that God's not really blessing us if he doesn't give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. In Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 26, Jesus talks about it like this, says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, more, not of more value than they? And think about it. Jesus goes on talking, too, about the flowers in the field and how great they look and what happens to them. And are we not more than the flowers in the field? Philippians chapter 4, 19, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He gives us what we need. Not always what we want, what we need. What other blessings does he give us? Well, he gives us every spiritual blessing and an inheritance that waits for us. Through the Holy Spirit, we receive all the blessings that can only come through God. Ephesians chapter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we have this great reward that waits for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And those are all wonderful blessings, but just a couple more. Most importantly, one of the greatest blessings we receive is salvation to all those who believe in his name. That is such a blessing, salvation to those who believe in his son. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And not only do we receive salvation for believing in his son, putting our faith in his son, we also receive a new life that comes through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, these are just a handful of ways that God blesses us today, but here's the thing. We have to remain obedient. We have to remain obedient. We have to follow after him. We have to do what he asks. We have to do what he says in order to experience the blessings that come from God. And so on one hand, we have this list. Okay, Israel, if you do these things... If you follow my commandments, if you follow my statutes and observe my commands and do them, then you will receive these blessings. But here's the bad news. There's an opposite to this. There's another side of the coin. In verse 14 through 16, it says this. It says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all of my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And so this first part here, the first part of the chapter showed us the blessings. Now we are going to see what happens if the people choose not to follow his commands. What if the people choose not to follow his decrees? What if the people choose not to listen to his rules and they choose to hate his rules? What's going to happen next? And I love how Warren Wiersbe puts it. He says, Israel's special relationship to Jehovah brought with it the obligation to obey his voice and glorify his name. Privilege brings with it responsibility. And no nation has enjoyed more spiritual privileges from the Lord than the nation of Israel. So they have an obligation to follow his commands and his decrees for all the things that he has done. But what happens if they choose not to? Well, God's going to let them know. In verses uh, 16 through 39, it says, Then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heartache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your road shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. 
and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, and I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will afford you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's lands, and the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest, of, uh, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into the hearts and the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them into flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though no one, or, yeah, no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them." pretty long of a list right there, and I don't know if you notice it. It seems like the, uh, the blessings are not as lengthy as this list of what happens if you're disobedient, but there's a lot that happens here, so let's look at some of these things that are mentioned. In verse 16, he says he will come on them with panic. He says, I will visit you with panic, and it's also translated as sudden terrors in some translations, and this is this idea of confusion of the mind. Their minds will be confused. Their minds will be filled with fear. And this is the kind of fear that you might experience when you can't control what is happening. I don't know if you've ever felt that, that terror, that fear that something has taken place in your life and you have no control over it. You can't do anything about it. God is going to come on them with this type of panic. And not only that, in verse 16, it mentions that there will be wasting disease and fever. And some translations say consumption. And both of these mean a disease that would slowly waste the body. It would, it would become sick, and over time, your body would slowly waste away. Many believe, many commentators believe that what is being referred to here is something like tuberculosis taken over a body. In verse 16, it also mentions that you shall sow your seeds in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. They're going to lose their crops to their enemies. They're going to plant their crops, they're going to grow, but then their enemies are going to come and take over and eat their crops. We actually see this played out in the book of Judges when evil was done in the sight of the Lord and they were given over to Midian. Judges uh, chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. Then, in verse 17, 
in verse, it goes hand in hand with verse 16, just as the enemies will take the crop of the Israelites, the enemies of Israel will attack the people, they will strike down the people, and then the people who hate them will rule over them. They're going to fall into the hands of their enemies. And all of this would happen because it says God has turned his face from the people. God will turn his face from the people, and had they just listened, his face would shine upon them. Number 6, 24 through 25, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. All they had to do was follow him, listen to his commands, his decrees, and God would be in their presence. But now, because of the way they're living, his face will turn upon them or away from them. And of course, once his face turns away from them, their enemies, absolutely, let's go attack while we can. And it says that because of this, because of the wickedness and God turning his face, they're going to lose all confidence. They're going to become paranoid. Even when nobody's chasing them, even when nobody's attacking them, even when there's nothing to fear, there will be fear. They are going to be paranoid over what's going to happen to them next. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Psalm 53.5, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. And then in verses 18 through 20, we see that God will shut up the rain and the grounds. They would become very hard. It says like bronze. We see similar word play used in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28, 23 through 24. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until until you are destroyed. And because of this, there would be great toil. They would work and work and work. They would work on their crops to try to make it grow. They would work the hard ground, and they would try and try and try, but it would all be for naught. There would be no reward. It would be done in vain because the crops and the trees would not produce. And then the list goes on. 21 and 22, it tells us that God will continue to strike the Israelites if they continue to walk away from him. It says sevenfold, and seven is a number of completeness. And this time he will bring upon them wild animals. And these wild animals, they wouldn't just kill their livestock, but they would also come in and they would kill the children. They would devour the children. And because of this, the land would become even more desolate. And then it gets worse. 23 through 26 shows us that this list continues to get worse. First, he mentions that he would again strike them sevenfold if they choose to still walk contrary to him. And he would bring a sword upon them. And what happens next would be a sword of judgment. And everything that happens here goes hand in hand. Their enemies are going to come after them. And, of course, their enemies could have them hemmed into the city. This would cause famine, everybody there with no crops, with no food, and the food that they do have wouldn't satisfy them. It says that God would send a plague. And think about this, they're all stuck together in this little space that God sends a plague, and that's going to spread around quickly. They're going to be hungry, sick, dying. Oh, and then verse 29. Verse 29 paints such a very grim picture of what famine will do to the people. You see these inhumane acts that come from famine. It says that they will have to eat their children out of severe hunger. Their sons, their daughters, they will have to eat them because there is nothing else to eat. 
Jeremiah 19.9 talks about something similar. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor and the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. And then it tells us, continuing, that the enemies of the Israelites would slaughter the people and they would take their bodies and they would throw them on the destroyed idols that they were worshiping, on the destroyed altars that were built. And it says that God's soul will abhor them. I want you to think about this for a second. The word abhor, it means to regard with disgust and hatred. God is saying, in my soul, I will have disgust for you. In my soul, I will hate you. These are his people. These are his people, the chosen people. And because of how they're living, he says, I will hate you in my soul. I can't even imagine. I don't even want to think about the idea that God could hate me. And that's just such a powerful word here that he, in his soul, would hate them. But then it continues, says that they would, or he would not smell their pleasing aroma. And this kind of carries the idea that they would try it again to offer sacrifices to revive their worship. But at this point, it seems like it's just a little bit too late for that. And then in verses 32 through 39, he's wrapping up the list of these actions that would take place. The people would be taken from their land, scattered among the nations, and they would be taken captive. And if you know the story of the nation of Israel, you see what happens to the nation of Israel later on. First, they're taken captive by Assyria. Second Kings 17, 5 through 6, And the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. Then, later on, the people are taken captive by Babylon, and during this time, the land would enjoy its Sabbath. For so long, the people would be gone that the land would enjoy the rest it got from not being worked because the people were no longer there. Second Chronicles 36, 20 through 21, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the day that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Jeremiah 25, 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Oh, and all those who were left alive, they would be cowardice. They would be paranoid. They would flee when nobody was chasing them. They would be afraid that if anything they did, there was going to be enemies right there. You see, this list is really hard to read. It is really hard to read. It's a very difficult thing to read to see what God will do to his people, and it's hard to swallow. But I think it brings us on to a hard truth, and it's this. Disobedience brings consequence. Disobedience brings consequence. If obedience brings blessings and disobedience brings along with it consequences, and this, again, this list is hard to read, but you, you notice what's taken place here. Some will look at this list and say, God is just a monster. God is just, look at what he's doing to these people. Look at all of these things. How can God that is so loving do something like this to all these people? But notice over and over again what God says here. 
And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, if by this you are not turned to me, if by this you are not turned to me, if you are not getting this, if you're getting this discipline and you still can't see that what you're doing is wrong, then this next thing will happen. And this next thing has happened. These are people who are choosing deliberately to walk away from God. These are people who are choosing to live in these habitual sins, even though they know that what they do is wrong. And there's the consequences that result because of this. And you see, there are real heartbreaking consequences for disobedience, and we are just as much a part of this as the nation of Israel. For us, there are consequences for our, our disobedience. There are consequences for us choosing to live in sin. And what are those? What are the, the consequences of our disobedience? Well, for starters, there's a loss of presence of God. There's a loss of the presence of God in our lives. If we choose to separate ourselves from God, if we choose to walk away from him, if we choose to do things on our own and walk according to what the world tells us we should do, if we choose to live for sin, God cannot dwell in the presence of sin because he is a holy God. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We've used this verse several times as we've gone through Leviticus, but it's true. Sin separates us from him, and if we choose to live in sin, if we choose to live for the things of this world instead of following after him, we cannot be surprised when we start to feel the presence of God separated from us. Another result of our disobedience is captivity. One of the results for the nation of Israel was captivity. They were taken into the hands of their enemies and they were taken into captivity for so many years. And you see, the result is the same for us. It just looks a little bit different. You see, we start to slowly walk away or maybe we walk away quickly from God and we start to live for the things of this world and we start to live for our fleshly desires and we start to live for these things that we think are better. And guess what? Over time, we become captives. We become captives to our sins. We become slaves to our sin. And the more and more we start to make bad choices and the more and more we start to do things that we know we should not do, we become slaves to our sinful nature. Jesus says this plainly in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We become captives to our sinful life. Paul says this in Titus when talking about his former life in Titus 3, 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We become captives to the sin that we let guide us and direct us and move us. And we become captives. Another result of sin in our lives, another consequence is sin brings death. Sin brings death. Now, this can mean both physical and spiritual death. In this passage, our passage it definitely shows the result of physical death on the people. And poor choices, living in sin, can cause physical death. But more so than this, it's the result, you can see the result that is spiritual death. Ezekiel 18.20, it says, the soul who sins shall die. The, uh, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Romans 
for the wages of sin is death. And you see, there are so many other results of disobedience that lead to consequences in our lives. Our sinful decisions can cause our relationships to be damaged. Our sinful nature, when we follow sinful desires, it can cause our friendship, our relationships with our loved ones. It can cause so many things to fall apart. Sin, disobedience, brings with it consequences. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. We're not going to end the text here. In verses 40 through 46, it says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humble and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I shall remember the land. That the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Everything that we've read up to this point in verses 14 and following, God could have just let that be it. He could have said, guess what? If you choose not to do this after all these disciplines, I'm just going to let you die. And guess what? He would be justified in it. He's justified in whatever he does because he is holy. But because of who he is, because of his holiness, because of his grace, his mercy, his compassion, he gives them the hope of forgiveness. He would remember the covenant that he made with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham when they are in the land of their enemies because guess what? Even if he forgives them, there's still consequences for their sins. Even when they're in the hands of his enemies, their enemies, he will not spurn them. He won't abhor them. He'll follow his covenant. But here's the thing I want you to notice. The important verses are in verses 40 and 41. But if, but if they confess their iniquities, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. Here's the third truth that I think our text shows us this morning, and it says confession and repentance are mandatory. Confession and repentance are mandatory. You see, I think this is something that so often we forget about. In our daily walks, we forget about this so often. We choose to not confess our sins. We choose not to repent of our sins. We think that, oh, it's all good. I can do whatever I want. I, and God knows what I think. So it, it doesn't, God already knows. So why do I need to confess? Why do I need to repent? I don't need to do any of these things. But Scripture reminds us that this is important. In 1 Kings chapter 8, 33 through 34, it says, When your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave their fathers. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and the iniquities of their fathers. And of course, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, 
John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, I really like how Martin Luther once said it, saying the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. And that's what we need to do. We need to recognize our sin. We need to recognize our sin, but not just recognize our sin, but also confess our sins before him. Repent of those sins before him. And part of confession is re- and repentance is not to just confess and repent, but then to turn from those things and to live for him. And so he gives the people this opportunity for, give, for forgiveness, this opportunity of hope. And this morning, I want to close in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, this is what it says. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, do you see what's happening in 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6? It's funny. It's almost identical to Leviticus chapter 26. It's almost like God is giving them this list. And he tells them, hey, if you follow these things, if you follow my commandments, if you follow my decrees, if you do what I ask you to do, then guess what? Your life is going to be so much better. And it's true. Life is better in God. Life is better in relationship with him. Life is better when we follow him. Life is better when we do what he asks us to do. John says, hey, I'm writing this list to you guys so that you do not sin. And I'm writing this stuff to you so that you would follow his commands. But then in Leviticus chapter 26, God says, if you're willing to confess your inadequacy, if you're willing to confess your sins, if you're willing to confess the problems in your heart, if you're willing to confess and repent of those things, I'll remember my covenant. And then in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate named Jesus Christ who came, who lived, who died on the cross, and by his blood we are forgiven, and by his blood we have been freed. By his blood we have cleansing for our sin. By his blood we have been redeemed. And God gave us this list to to be holy, to be obedient. And guess what? We're going to stumble, we're going to fall. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been living a life apart from him. You've been choosing to do what is being said here. You've been choosing to walk apart from him. You've been walking contrary to him. You've been living for the things of this world, the fleshful desires, the things that the world tell you are better than God. You've been living for those things. Maybe what you need to do today is turn and walk with him. Put your faith in him. Give your life to him. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. 
follow him. And if that's the case this morning on your connect card, you can write that. I'd love to talk with you about it. I'd love to pray with you because life is better when we are in relationship with him, when we do what he asks, when we follow his laws, his rules, his commands, his decrees and walk according to him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've just started to walk away. Maybe you're starting to kind of stumble off and maybe what you need to do this morning is just come before him and give those things to him. Right where you're sitting, you can pray, you can talk with him, you can lay all those things at his feet. You see, this morning, God gave the people two, op two options. You can choose to live for me and be obedient and receive those blessings that can only come from me, or you can choose to disobey me and you can choose to walk away from me, but guess what? The consequences are going to be there and the same opportunity is here for us. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You can choose to be obedient and you can choose to walk for him. You can choose to live for him. You can choose to walk beside him and do what he asks you to do, or you can choose to walk away from him. The option is yours. But I pray this morning that you would think about it strongly. Are you going to be obedient or are you going to be disobedient? If you have a decision to make this morning, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing.